Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric, and I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your generous support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Yes, what he said. Now, let's get to the show. Let's hear it. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another week with Let's Hear It. And um, this week, Eric, you sit down and talk with David Morse. I know an old friend and colleague. And anyway, don't let me say any more. Give us a little setup and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk. Tell you about David Morse. Yes. David, well, we talked about this in the show. David Morse is one of the longtime foundation communications gurus. He was at Pew, and then he was at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Then he went to Atlantic Philanthropies. He was at the center of when Robert Wood Johnson was ramping up on communications in following on Frank Carell, who is considered by many to be the granddaddy of foundation communications. And David talks about about Frank. There, oh, there's one thing that I would note, just for the listener. I asked David who which foundations are really uh, doing things really well, and uh, and he says kind of under his breath, um, OSF, and he's referring to the Open Society Foundation, okay. which is of course George Soros's foundation. So when you hear him say that, you, you might miss it. I, I just want everybody to know uh, what he's that he's referring to uh, George Soros's foundation. So just a little liner note at the beginning of this conversation. Oh man, that's great. And there's a lot in here. So we'll come back and talk about it afterwards. But um, Eric Brown with David Morris on Let's Hear It. Let's, let's take a listen. My guest is David Morris, who is, if not the granddaddy of foundation communications people, then Thank maybe, you. <laughs> you're welcome, then, then the son of granddaddy. Well, that would be fair, because if, if Frank Carell was the granddaddy, I'm, glad, I'm proud to be Frank's disciple. Yeah. Right. You, I mean, if you were to do... So progeny. He, you're, you're his right. progeny. Right. I'm sure he would have right. He would have been good with that. You were at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for how long? Ten years. Ten years. And before that, you were at Pew. At Pew. For four years. And before that, you worked for Jacob Javits? Before that, I worked at the University of Pennsylvania. I taught and I did communications and lo- I was the university's lobbyist. Got actually. it. So, oh, really? And then I worked for um, the Senate. I worked for Bob Stafford from Vermont, who is the father of Stafford Loans, the father of the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. And, um, you know, probably we used to say when I, and then I worked for Javits before that. So I used to say when I, when I worked for Stafford, um, Javits had offended as many people as, as uh, Stafford represented. <laughs> so you're making amends yeah, with right, Stafford. Right, exactly. Uh, I know you, of course, from your work at the Robert Johnson Foundation. And uh, the work that you had done with the communications network and kind of bringing up those of us who came just slightly behind you in, in the field of communications. And I know that you lap me very quickly. <laughs> Hardly. Yeah. But if, if you think about it, um, th- if you think about the lineage of, of Frank Carell, who I, he really did establish the kind of the modern way of thinking right. around foundation communications, right? 
and and you followed him. Can you talk yeah. just a little bit about? Um, yeah, we'll start with the recent past, and we're gonna then we'll work our way backward and forward. But what you know, what were you coming into when you went into Robert Johnson Foundation? So actually, my my connection to Frank preceded that, um, and this is sort of how I learned about strategic communications. In and I got a phone call from this guy who I knew of, but I had never met, and he said he said David. I said yeah. I said this is Frank Carell. He said, uh, what's your schedule look like? And I said, well, you know, I got some meetings. And then, you know, so why don't you, you know, why don't we, why don't we talk in a couple of weeks? And I said, no, I'm coming down tomorrow. And so he came down from Princeton to Philadelphia. And um, I figured spend an hour, have a cup of coffee or something like that. Five hours at the restaurant downstairs from, um, from Pew. And he regales me about sort of the history of strategic communications in philanthropy. And who's doing it well, who's not doing it well. And then he invited me to join the communications conference that they put together for grantees on on an annual basis at at RWJ, just to sort of see how they did it. And it was an incredible learning experience. And one of the things I say about Frank, because it's true, is that he's the most, even though um, he wasn't necessarily generous financially, although he was, he endowed the the chair here at the University of Florida, but uh, he was the most generous with his time um, in terms of helping people learn. And so that's I really sort of uh, internalized that and tried to externalize it. Why did well. you, Why did he call you that day? Do you know? He called me because Rebecca Rimel told him to. Who <laughs> 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 was the president of Pew? Was and still is the president right. of Pew. <laughs> so, tell this guy what he should be. What he should be doing, Frank. So what did he tell you? He basically said, you know, foundations don't do a very good job of communicating. They do a terrible job of communicating about themselves. They do a terrible job generally about helping their grantees communicate. So that even though they and their grantees may have the same values, they're never really well expressed, either by the grantee or by, uh, or by the foundation. And he said, you know, you've got you to do this. You've got a platform to do this and do it really well. And what did you do at Pew based on Frank's direction? I'm not sure I followed it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think Pew did a great job, I think, of putting itself on the map. And that was, I think, Rebecca's objective. Not sure they did as good a job of putting their grantees on the map. Conversely, RWJ did a very good job of putting its grantees sort of in the center at uh, at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I went to and then I went to um, a foundation Atlantic that had been completely anonymous right. for so long and didn't really care at all about communicating its own values really. And so again, went back to sort of that mode of communicating about uh, about and for and on behalf of the grantees. But you were also trying to then you went. I forgot to mention that you were at, you were last at Atlantic, right. in which you managed the whatever. What, what was the what's the term of art? It's not spend down. It's, <laughs> I knew I was going to say it's, something it's, wrong. It's, it's limited trouble. life. Uh, we were what I call an end of life philanthropy, right? <laughs> at the end of our own life, right? Yeah, right. And, and I'm aging in place. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, okay. So at the end of at the end. So you were dealing with the end of life at Atlantic, and I think trying, among other things, to establish either the legacy or to help others understand what you had learned over that time. So there was right. some some combination of supporting grantees, but also kind of communicating externally about the work of the foundation, correct? Yeah, and that was, that was most important. I mean, you know, I think the term unique is among the most uniquely overused term <laughs> in, in, in philanthropy and, frankly, in life. And right? people say very yeah, unique. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. I throw yeah. up in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, I hate adverbs. So, um, uh, most adverbs. So, um, 
Here lies Morris. Yeah, right. He hated most adverbs. I especially hate most adverbs. <laughs> but what was unique about Atlantic, or distinctive, let's put it that way, there you is go. the fact that it was put massive amounts of dollars into uh, funding people and organizations and and did it sort of as a as a philosophy because Chuck Feeney, the founder, said, I want to spend it all before I die. And he probably looked, I don't know if this is true, he probably looked at an actuarial table and said, I'm going to live until I'm 86 years old. So he set that date that where, where he was going to be 86. And he said, yes. we're going to spend it, we're going to spend it all by this time, right? <laughs> S is insurance so, guy. Yeah, which is, you know, which is really sort of, incre- it's really incredible. And he really did, he really did give it all away right. and left it to his legatee, so to speak, to make those make the decisions about what to fund and did, I, I think, ultimately a really good job of uh, helping create social change, which is what this was really about. I'd like to talk a lot about what you what you were able to accomplish at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, because when I was at the Hewlett Foundation, we, I, among others, looked to you and the work that you were doing with a lot of admiration. You had a heat, you had a large communications budget. You did a lot of work with your grantees. I mean, you just had a lot of tools at your disposal, but I thought you were using them well. Well, how did you go about thinking through how to create a communication strategy for a private endowed foundation? And what was that process like? It was perhaps Frank got it started, but you kept it going. Yeah, well, Frank really did get it started, and and I didn't learn really anything new except what I what I learned from Frank and and basically and my own experience at, at Pew. Again, the grantees were at the center. Frank established that principle. One of the ch- big challenges at at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is we had a lot of grantees who were working in the same field. So, say there were six grantees who were working toward more or less the same objective, but in different ways on alcohol and tobacco use, for example, or alcohol and drug use. But they were all sort of going off with their own individual strategies to achieve it, and very different communication strategies as well. So that one of the things that we did at Robert Wood Johnson was say, okay, we've been giving grantees as part of their grants dollars that were specifically designated for communications. But what that did was diffuse the communications about the issue from the perspective of each individual grantee. Mm-hmm. So um, diffuse, D-I as opposed to D-E. We probably defuse, <laughs> probably defuse them too. You might have lit, yeah, lit a few right, fuses yeah, too right. while you were on. So, so what we what we did probably about three or four years in was sort of change the the foundation's communication strategy in terms of support of the grantees to support from support to individual grantees to support of the issue and mm-hmm. the thrust that 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 multiple grantees were were taking to address a particular topic, so say tobacco or say childhood obesity or something like that. So rather than embed the dollars in the individual grants for each each organization to be able to communicate more effectively, we basically kept them at the institutional level and sometimes funded one communications firm Mm -hmm. or one consultant to basically do manage the communications and help the, the the organizations meet their strategy. That was something that was not very easily accepted by the grantees when we made the switch because we were taking dollars away from them and putting them into this sort of general general communications pot. But I think over time it worked, and over time I think they appreciated it too. And who was, I don't know, for lack of a better word, the conductor of that communication strategy? It was probably first me. I suppose, mm-hmm. and Frank before me. And then there were, so if you think of it from 
your metaphor of an orchestra, right? For hopefully made good good music. There was a first violin, and there was a, a head of the oboe section, the the, the woodwind section. We had individual uh, communication staff who were managing each of the different fields or mm-hmm. each of the different teams. Uh, the communications for each of the different teams, and on and then on each of these issues, let's just say childhood obesity, for example, right. you've got a a firm that's running a com- that's helping to direct a communication right. strategy, right. providing communication services and consulting support. I assume to a host of grantees, Correct. and who manages who is kind of creating that communication strategy strategy itself, and how and if it was the firm, did you deputize them to kind of say you guys carry this message, you guys carry it that? It was message? actually more top down. Than so it was more coming from the foundation. So, so that the foundation's communications officer, say, for childhood obesity was Catherine Thomas at mm-hmm. the time. So she would develop the strategy. It would all fit into the overall strategy of the foundation. And then she would execute that with the firm on behalf of the grant, mm-hmm. on behalf of the grantees. So that's really top down. Yeah, it's very, it was very top down. Did it and work? I think it, it did work. Um, I think it did work. Now, you can sort of question, I think, what the results have been. Mm -hmm. I mean, take childhood obesity. The objective over 10 years was that we would drive down the rates of childhood obesity. Not sure that's happened. But um, I think there's certainly more awareness of issues of obesity. And, you know, one of the challenges, particularly at the beginning, was, you know, these are all... these issues are all, you know, all represent opportunity costs, right? Of course. Opportunities and opportunity costs. So if you have a limited amount of dollars you, you're going to spend in any one year, if you're going to spend 5% or 6%, then, and, and you say, well, our, our main focus is going to be childhood obesity, that means something else has to give. So um, there was a lot of consternation, particularly early on, 2004, 2005, that RWJ was getting into this more deeply into this field of childhood obesity, which was obesity was, I think, the number two, uh, and, and the factors around obesity were the number two factors in um, cause of uh, morbidity, mortality in the U.S. behind tobacco. What that meant is we're going to be spending less on tobacco. Right. Right. Tobacco control. But it feels to me like, all right, I'm going to make sweeping generalizations, which I'm good at, but it feels to me like communications we are seeing a lot more communications happening from from the bottom up. Right. You, you know, you're seeing grassroots movements that have been very powerful and really responsive to what life on the ground, however you want to define yep. it, is. Do you see that foundations are either changing the way they are thinking about grantee communications or communications in their fields based on that, whether they or whether they supported work that allowed that to happen? I mean, there's a change. There's a shift in how we think about communications around issues, either in response to or just kind of different from what you used to do. Yeah, I don't. Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I don't speak from great knowledge on this because I've been sort of out of the field for for a few years. But my sense is that foundations haven't caught up to the new modes and and opportunities for communications yet. Mm-hmm. I think they're getting there, but I don't think they're there yet in general. Um, I think they're still, and, and this is a challenge of foundations anyway, is that because they fund mostly on a project basis as opposed to providing general support for organizations, although I think it's getting a little better, but these are also pendulum shifts. So back in the, you know, I remember back in the early 90s, you had collaborations of foundations funding things like the Energy Foundation, you know, from, yep. from your Hewlett experience, LISC. Um, corporation for supportive housing, those kinds of things in which the foundations put in large tranches of support and basically said, we're going to fund the core of this organization 
and you, the organization, are going to do what you need to do in order to grow and succeed, as opposed to later, because of the nature of foundation staff and that, you know, they, they tended to come from the field and they had a specific objective that they wanted to meet, so they would provide a lot of project support. And so when you're providing project support, you are much more focused on the outcome of the, the specific outcome of the project and, and generally have more of a short-term perspective than you do if you have a perspective of, we're going to provide you with general operating support and you're going to be addressing a long-term structural problem that contributes to bad health or contributes to poverty or that kind of thing. And so I think that what project support does is, is make you maybe more of a micromanager, it yeah. is direct you to being more of a micromanager. Right. Spend the money on right. communication. Yeah. Right. We know right. that it's good for you. Right. Right. All right. This is a good segue to... But not just communications. Right. I mean, or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, spend it on what we right. want you to spend right. it on. Right. And it may be that. Right. And in, or if they won't do it, then you'll provide right. them with the communications help, right. whether they want it or not, right. whether they like it or not, but it's probably good right. for them. So, so meet our objective. Don't necessarily meet your objective. Right. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Okay, that's a perfect segue to the current, I don't know if you want to call it controversy, but conversation du jour about philanthropy and the role of philanthropy. And there's a couple of books out, and David Callahan has Inside Philanthropy. He has a perspective about what, how foundations should be doing their work. And then there's the new book, um, Anand... Gerharadis. Gerharadis, who, who... He's got another, you know, he, I think if I understand the argument properly, and I will read the book, I swear, which is that modern philanthropy is funding in such a way to perpetuate right. the institutions that allowed right. it to occur in the first place. Structural inequality. Structural right. inequality. Right. Where, okay, you've been here, you've been at this for a really, for a long time. You knew Joel Fleischman as he was right. working on his foundation book. Right. What's your take on any of this? Can you help me better understand... Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What do you think? Or or maybe just getting to the the nub of it, which is, do you think that foundations do a good job? And are there, do you have your own sense about modern philanthropy versus the old style, you know, old private foundations versus this new concept of creating LLCs and that kind of stuff? I'm going to let you go with that because I think you might have a... (laughs) Help me understand or a good perspective on it for someone who's seen yeah, it. Yeah, so, so let me get to the second issue issue first. You know, the new versus. I'm a really the, lousy yeah, question right. asker, no, 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 by no. the way. No, the new the new versus <laughs> the 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 old philanthropy because you know I did listen to your your podcast with Larry and I think I'm sort of where he is uh-huh. on that. There are not a lot of new ways of doing these things. There may be you know put, putting new wine in old bottles. A, a lot of that. The LLC model is actually very much like what Chuck Feeney did mm-hmm. by establishing his Atlantic Philanthropies in Bermuda. Right, that's so right. That, so that he was like uh, like Zuckerberg. He was able, he didn't get any tax break in the U.S. Right. Because it was established in, in Bermuda. But what it did was it enabled him to continue to control the companies that were, uh, that made up Atlantic, that, that fed the right. corpus of Atlantic Philanthropies. So he was able to, 
direct the income to philanthropy. Right. In some ways, that's a lot like what what the LLC model is in the U.S. Because you know, you set up an LLC, you make a contribution to a charitable to a charitable organization. The LLC can take the deduction, but it doesn't get the tax benefit of, for being an LLC. Right. But you can control the composition of the LLC. Right. This makes the transparency people apathetic. Right. Crazy. Correct. Right. Right. Doesn't bother me so much. <laughs> You're doesn't, okay with it. Do, doesn't really bother me so much because then you also can do what most philanthropies in the U.S. can do but don't, which is invest in advocacy. Right. Invest in you know and do a lot of C four. You can do a lot of C four work. Again, the LLC can't take there. There's no tax advantage to doing that for the LLC, but it's probably easier to do it through an LLC than it is through a philanthropy. At least it's seen that it's seen that way. Do you think foundations are too timid? Yes, way too timid. I think there's way more risk. One of the reasons I loved being at Atlantic was, you know, one of the things, one of the great things about intentionally going out of business and knowing when you're going to go out of business is you can piss a lot of people off and there's nothing they can do about it, right? Right. Including the government, supposedly, <laughs> presumably. What are they going to so, do? Put right, you out of business? Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. So if there's no more money, you can't, you can't create a fine, even though that wouldn't happen anyway. So. And what about, yeah, okay, so that's easier. Right. Right. You're Chuck Feeney. Right. You're. Right. Getting up there, right? You want to spend out before you pass away. Uh, that's one thing, right? But if you're the CEO of a foundation, either a private endowed foundation with a board of directors who, yeah, live in the world, they right. live in the yeah, world, right? Or even more interesting, perhaps, is that your donor is alive and right. writes your check, right? How timid do you think you need to be in that instance? I think you should have more. You should be able to be more to take more risk. Yeah. I think most foundations don't go up to the line, and virtually none cross it. So, and I think actually that was I think Callahan's book, I think Callahan's thesis is just right. I think one of the things that that strikes me though is that he sort of advocates what I would call unilateral disarmament uh-huh. because he says that foundations shouldn't be doing what uh, what the Koch brothers are doing with. Uh, Prosperity for America, or right. something like that, and and I think that um, that there should be much more um, willingness to be uh, much more engaged in advocacy than um, than most foundations do. Yeah. Uh, who who are you? Who do you think does this particularly well now? If, if even if most foundations don't go up to the line, anyone that you're looking at saying, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." OSF, they're taking they're taking real risks, yeah. and, and uh, you know, Atlantic didn't have a didn't have such a, you know, because of its anonymity, historical anonymity, it didn't have quite the profile, at least in the U.S. It has, it has a profile in <laughs> Ireland, had a profile in right. South Africa, had a profile in Vietnam, but but not really a profile that was particularly distinctive in in the U.S. And, I mean, George Soros is uh, right. utter, utterly right. fearless. Right, exactly. An ex- life experience yeah. that right. allows him to right. be fearless. Right, right. Uh, yeah, oh, I, I, I happen to agree with you. I guess my last question for you is, is where do you see, going back to foundation communications, um, you know, a lot of our colleagues work inside foundations and they're, they're doing communications and they're looking at what you used to do. They're looking at, they're looking at what Open Society Foundation is doing and everybody in between. They go to the communications network or they come to Frank and they're just trying to figure out how do they do their jobs better. What, what do you see? Is there anything right now that either excites you or would help you kind of point folks who are doing this job in these various places at these various institutions and say, like, those guys are doing it, doing something really interesting. 
or here's somebody who's a leader in, in foundation communications or nonprofit communications who, who we all need to just learn much more from. Yeah. I think, I don't think there's any one person in, there, there are a few per, people I can name, but I think that the, the work that's really rich and development, and, but still very developmental, is the work on understanding and shifting narratives about issues like race and inclusivity and poverty and inequality, structural inequality. The folks who are doing work in that field, I think that's the next place where foundations will be increasingly investing because it's, it's, so the big thing when you and I were starting in this, it was all about storytelling. Mm -hmm. Narrative is at the, is it, is at the meta level, right? It's about the, the, the big story. It's not about the individual story of, you know, Jack and Jill, uh, you know, went up the hill, but it's about the, um, what does what do these aggregations of stories mean in terms of what is the dominant frame and the dominant narrative about about an issue? And I think we can all be foundations, foundations and nonprofits can all be way more way more literate mm-hmm. and way more understanding and, and adept at at dealing with these larger issues. And there have been some there have been some big success stories in terms of narrative shift that I think we. We have to learn from now. There are different narratives, but the the narrative shift over the last twenty years in the U.S. and the Republic of Ireland on marriage equality, right? right? Yep. And shifting from a rights and justice frame, which was important, to a you know somebody ought to be able to marry the person they love, right? right? Which gets to because rights and justice are those ideas are cont- are, are, are contentious, right? So yep. my right my right to marry the person I love butts up against your right to deny me the opportunity for you to bake my cake for my wedding, right? Right, that's yeah. right. Right. Yeah. And I'm just saying, you worked on trying to shift the narrative on health right. for a long time. Right. How'd you do? In terms of the narrative on health, I mean, there's, I think if you look at politics in the U.S., there certainly is a, is a sense that people should have an increasing sense that, that health is a human right. Mm-hmm. And that it's something that uh, should be facilitated by government, if not paid for by government and the taxpayers. And I think there, but that's been again. This has been that's been a pendulum. So I think you could have said that around the time of the debates about Hillary Care, and then you couldn't. And now I think you uh, and 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 Obamacare, and you couldn't, and now you can again. You think Obamacare will will survive? Yeah, in some form. I think it. I think that it's. Uh, it's a bit like there was a guy who was the, the chief economist, I think, for the Joint Joint Tax Committee, who used to say that, that um, things like health care are like vampires. You can never drive a stake in their heart and kill them, right? Yeah. Ooh, one last little thing. Having been at Atlantic and at Robert Johnson Foundation, which were both working on ACA, right? you, you, see, you now have both sides of the right. – so you see both sides of the yeah. elephant or something yeah. like that. How did those – can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I'm fascinated because you, both foundations worked very, very hard on advancing yeah. health care. So, so going back to the origins, or basically the origins in some ways of both foundations, but certainly of, um, of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, I mean, that would, foundation was established in 1972, right when Nixon and uh, Wilbur Mills and Russell Long said, okay, we're going to actually pass national health and we're going to actually pass national health insurance. So... 1973 comes around, Watergate, Wilbur Mills, you know, is caught in the tidal basin with right. Fanny Fox, all that stuff. <laughs> nothing, nothing happens, right? 
so nothing happens. But but still, RWJ was working for years on increasing access to care, doing a lot of studies, um, sort of building the field of health services research, which was really important. And that's that's something that foundations actually do really well mm-hmm. is build fields, right? Start fields and build, you know, or, or take the spark of fields and, and build them. But I think that RWJ, after in the discussions about um, Hillary Care in 1993, 94, 95, really got burned because it was seen, perceived by policymakers and by folks particularly on the right as being too much in bed with with the Clintons mm-hmm. and too too eager to pass a particular type of, you know, to, to increase socialized medicine, so to speak. So after being burned, feeling burned for a period of time, I think that RWJ really didn't step further, far enough into the water again, was pretty neutral, set up this sort of broad, you know, suggested this broad set of principles that any health reform should have. And on the other hand, Atlantic basically funded Healthcare for America now, basically $29, $30 million, something like that. Uh, I think probably for one year, maybe, maybe might have been hundreds of millions Mm -hmm. overall. And so you could say that had, I think you could fairly say that had Healthcare for America not now not existed, we might not have Obamacare. That's a that's yeah. a that's a big yeah. that's a big achievement, right? Well, uh, I just really thank. I mean, I thank you for just being a great mentor for me over the years and to help build this field. I, I do really believe that uh, the field of foundation communications is has come a long way, particularly since you got the ball rolling here. You kind of kept kept up with uh, what Frank was doing, but it's um it's been. Yeah, it's it's been really fun to work with you over the years, and, and yeah, it's been it's been, been a great it's collaborator. Been, well, it's been great seeing the it's been great seeing the field grow. I mean, I think Frank felt that way, and and um, you know, there are a lot more of us. You know, we've um, um, I don't know if we multiplied and prospered, but we certainly multiplied. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for for being a, a multiplier. Yeah, great. Thanks, David Morris. Thank you. And there it is, Eric and David. Um, I just keep saying this every time, Eric, but man, that was a great conversation. And so you trace the history of foundation communications through Frank to David to the field. And I'm like, tell me that book has been written. Tell me there's a video or something because I just thought it was – I'm like, wow. And again, this is my journey of discovery. I'm on the journey of discovery. I'm like, wow, we just got back to – and and I was going to say this in the setup too, but like Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, this is hallowed ground, right? In the foundation communications world, this is – so – Tell me a little bit about this whole history piece, because obviously you talked about that, uh, you know, on our discussion about the Frank conference. But just, yeah, give, tell me a little bit about this history. I want the history lesson. I want to hear it. <laughs> Robert you know? it is it, it is hologram. You have to kiss the doorway when you go in at Princeton. Everyone has to kiss the doorway. Yeah. It, uh where do I begin? Oh, okay, first of all, I have a feeling that you're piling more work on me, Kirk. That you want me to write some book now about foundation communication, I do. as if I, I, do. I, I want mm-hmm. people out there to know that Kirk is the Tom Sawyer. <laughs> you are the Tom Sawyer of this partnership. That's true. No, no, you're like, oh, you come up with a great That's idea. Let's true. paint this fence, and pretty soon you're sitting there having a having a, a, a lemonade, and I'm 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 covered in paint. So I. I <laughs> 
It's, but, it's an amazing But let me say, I'm having a great time. I'm having a great time. It's super fun. It's super fun to be in this chair. And I look forward to reading the book and I want to read the articles and I want to watch the video. So thank you. Stupid podcast. So (laughs) telling you. It's unbelievable. And I'm I'm so gullible. There I am, Charlie Brown. I'm like, oh, I think I'll be able to kick the football this time. Right on my ass. That's All right. right. So this is what we need. The history of foundation history communications. Of foundation. Here we go. <laughs> First, we're going to go back in time. Well, oh, so it's interesting because the communications network is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. And wow. I was told there'd be no math, but that wow. I'm guessing that means what? 78. Is that right? So 70 and 79, 79 and 40 is 2019. Yeah. So 40 years ago, way back, 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 Council on Foundations, they started a little rump group on communications. Frank was at the center of that. uh, And if I have this right, and he really began to develop strategic communications and foundations when he was running communications at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I think I've said this before in other, other podcasts as well, but there were, when I started at the Hewlett Foundation in 2003, the head of the Ford Foundation Communications was basically running publications. The head of found of communications at the MacArthur Foundation was doing mm-hmm. media relations. It was a totally different field. And that was just 2003, so 16 years ago, which feels like yesterday, but I guess it's almost two decades. Right. Yeah. For a long time, foundation communications was about media relations and the phone would ring and people would stare at it and go, hmm, I guess I better pick that up. Uh, and a lot of publications. But it, it hasn't always been thus. And as we had this conversa- the conversation with David, it's it's changing before our eyes. You may ask about this question. I'm going to preempt it anyway, which is David helped put together the idea of running communication strategies out of the foundation, which is phenomenally top-down and not everybody's cup of tea. But I had a conversation with a foundation communications person recently, and it went like this. The president says that we we need to understand the communication strategy for the issue that we're working in and something that we are funding disproportionately. How do we think about that? And the answer is ask David Morris, because that's exactly what he did. And you know, that piece about using communications at the cause or issue level or at the foundation level. And I love he he talked about how as Frank approached communications, it was not sort of sitting off on the side, but it was central to what, you know, they were trying to do. When it when that's done well, it changes the narrative, which you guys talk about in the discussion. It's so extraordinarily difficult to do that well. And it struck me too, one of the things that's a subtext here, and I feel like David, you know, his demeanor and your conversation, he's just such a level-headed, thoughtful person, clearly. But it really struck me this notion of influence, you know, that it's not just how you get everybody together, how you start getting the conversation headed the right way, but also how do you bring people on board for that direction, right? And, and And he was talking about how, well, you, you called it top down. I don't know. There's probably different ways you could characterize it, but that the communications officer in the foundation was developing and implementing that strategy, that framework. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a tough role, Isn't it? right? Like think about all the mixing and matching. So then mm-hmm. the other thing about David's just story, when he describes, and you actually touch on all this, 
what a range of roles he's had in his life. And and I, and I feel like there's something in here yeah. too, right? Because there's such a multi-headed thing that you're always trying to do and you're trying to work at communications at that scale. And I'm just curious about your taking that because here he is, he comes from University of Pennsylvania. He was doing comms there. He was a lobby, he was a professor of communications there, but also a lobbyist and then, you know, did a stint with different elected officials. Do you have a feeling for that piece of it, just how those different experiences have helped shape his whole sensibility? He was also at Pew. And from Pew, he went to Robert Wood Johnson, which was, I think, less, far less aggressive or less visible as a foundation for quite some time. Then he went, and of course, then he went to Atlantic, which had been anonymous. Now, it wasn't anonymous once he got there, but it's way of thinking and Chuck Feeney's way of thinking was not about focusing on Atlantic. It was about how do we make sure that our money goes furthest and how do you support grantees? But it was also, they were also driving a number of strategies, although it was done in a a much different way. And, you know, I wrote a book for Atlantic Philanthropies about four advocacy campaigns or initiatives that they funded and which were done with varying degrees of kind of aggressive strategy development inside the foundation. So he's really seen the whole, he's seen the gamut of ways different foundations and institutions think about communications and advocacy and all that other stuff. You know, he's got it all there. Somebody go call him up, take that man out for a drink or two and just put a quarter in him because he's got so much to offer in terms of guidance and thought and all that other stuff. He's, you know, a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. And he's a great guy. This is why you and David are going to write a book because, because here, here, here's my pick. <laughs> yes, Tom, what color should the fence be? He talks about Rebecca, his new boss, Rebecca calls Frank and basically says, um, spend time with David. And I, that story where Frank comes down and he's like, what's your schedule? I'll be there tomorrow. He spends five hours with them. <laughs> and that's about the generosity that Frank brings. That's about Rebecca's yeah. insight to be like, hey, I want to get David connected with Frank to really learn about this. But I was listening to that. And I'm thinking, okay, so now you're a new, and I don't care if it's a communications person at a foundation or just a foundation staffer, who is the Frank in your life? And maybe this exists. Maybe the communications uh-huh. network has done this, but you start the job. Who is going to sit down with you and basically say, here's the playbook A to Z you take from this, what you what you like and and, and use it however you want. Does that exist? And if it doesn't, you're oh, David. Yeah. Okay, it does in spades. It's there. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I have, I have, a, I have a, 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 a passel of Franks. Okay. And I mean, I can tell stories about each of them. One On one of my first days at the Hewlett Foundation, Chris DiCardi, who was then the communications director at the Packard Foundation, who I knew... Who, who I had known from TC, who recommended me for the Hewlett job, said, you should talk to Matt James. Matt James at the time was running yeah. communications at, at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And I go up the street because our offices were almost across the street from each other. I went up and I said, hi, my name is Eric. I'm now at the Hewlett Foundation. Chris told me I should meet with you. He said, come over for lunch. Huh. We go to lunch. at their, They have the lunchroom and it's got paper on the tables. And little boxes, you know, little buckets of crayons. Mm-hmm. And Matt starts pulling out crayons and saying, okay, and asking me questions and answering them. And he, he he's taking notes on the crayons about my communication strategies. He's like, okay, this is what you should do. And he writes it all out on this crayon on a on butcher paper and folds it up and hands it to me. And says, here's your communication strategy. And, uh, I mean, it was that kind of generosity. And Chris DiCardi and David Morse and Ann Cristiano, and he, she was running the Connect Project at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Minna Jung, who I interviewed earlier in this yeah. uh, series. 
I, I could go on and on and on. Alfred Ironside at the Ford Foundation mm -hmm. and Joanne Krell at the Kellogg Foundation, who now has her own uh, consulting firm, which is wonderful. Mm. I, I could, I honestly, and you, uh, I could go on and on and on and on and on. People have been phenomenally generous to me, and I really do try to return the favor. And I encourage anybody who gets a phone call from anybody saying, can you help me think through what I'm doing in my job to say yes and to make the time because that's how you make the field stronger. I mean, it's that's just right. how it happens. Pass it along. Well, you know, so then the last thing I want to jump to, there's so much we could talk a lot, but I know we're kind of bumping into time, but uh, so this is what I branded the 20 minute moment of the podcast. So you get <laughs> it's 20 minutes, minutes in, like 19 minutes of nonsense and no, boredom. No, no, no. You get wedding. It's, it's like really fun. And then, and then you, in 20 minutes, you throw a, a, a something out and it gets super real. And this one, it was your perspectives on how foundations should do their work, you know, the sort of ah. new versus old. And you get into that discussion. And I thought that, you know, David's perspectives there were super interesting and you guys talk about the role of LLCs. And, and so I just really hope that people get to that point and, it, and it's extremely thoughtful. But then you also get into the narrative shifts that are possible. And you specifically talk about marriage equality as an example of a, of a, of a narrative mm -hmm. that really changed. And I think we should have those folks on the podcast because I, I just think that that's such an instructive and just interesting um, example of how fundamentally you can change the, the frame on an issue. Yeah. And let me tell you something that it is really interesting because one of the stories I wrote for Atlantic was about marriage equality in Ireland and their approach mm. to winning on marriage equality in Ireland was much different than the approach on winning oh. in the U.S., and I would love to get the folks either from the Gill Foundation or who, who ran the Marriage Equality Project here in the U.S. and Brian and have them kind of share ideas. And Brian Sheehan, who ran the who helped co-run the initiative in Ireland to have them get together and, and compare and contrast how they did what they did, because they were completely contextually designed. We, we they designed a, a strategy for their culture and sensibilities and ways of thinking. And obviously you have to understand context. Kristen Grimm talks about that in my conversation with her. That's what she's really learning now in when she thinks about communication strategy is that so much of it relies on the context in which your strategy occurs. That may seem like such an obvious thing, but I bet you that a lot of people don't ask that question sufficiently. Yeah. I mean, they don't ask it and really, really listen hard to get the answer. What context are we operating in? That's going to drive so much of what kind of goals we set, what kind of audiences we we try to persuade, and obviously the messaging. Well, and that's why that notion you guys talked about project versus general support, you talk about cause level yep. communications, like that's why you just have to set, pull the lens way back so you can see everything. And also who we, we also, you mentioned it in the intro, but you, David mentions the Open Society Institute. You kind of can't really hear it, but they're an example of a foundation he thinks that's doing it well. We should totally see if we can get those guys in the podcast just <laughs> oh, to hear from sure. them. If they're willing to talk, you know, if they're willing oh, to share sure. what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, so. Laura Silber, who runs for communications for OSF, is fabulous. Another one, another person well, who, who I've turned to for advice and, and ideas over time. The um, Oh, and the other thing that obviously David is a big proponent for the limited life foundation and he mm -hmm. said when it, when he said something like well if you're living in life it doesn't matter who you piss off because you're going out of business yeah. anyway i gotta say <laughs> so it was line. funny when you guys were talking about 
when you were having the whole conversation about the role of foundations, are they too timid? Should they be doing more? I was sitting there thinking to myself, so I love this from the perspective of where we come from because we align with foundations that share values and we'd like to see their work extended. I was trying to think if I was listening to this conversation from a perspective of people that radically had a different viewpoint than I do of the world, if it would be chilling mm-hmm. or inspiring, you know, because it was extremely inspiring to hear you guys talk about it. But, and then my last book oh, idea geez. for you okay. is the multipliers. It's the multipliers mm-hmm. because you thank David for being a multiplier and he clearly yep. is. And again, people like David, so cool to ha- hear from him because I'm like, God, David, you've touched so many people more than you even know, yeah, you know, you'll have to mention all the people he's taught, et cetera. So I love that the multipliers and I, I would, I would echo that David, the thank little you for flapping butterfly wings thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs> That's great. So anything else? This was a great discussion, Eric. I really, I yeah, loved it. Was just it. A fun, it, was so it was a real fun conversation. He's a great guy. Well, Eric, thank you. Uh, David, as always, thank you. And um, everybody, thanks for joining us on Let's Eric. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that definitely includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Limited Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments, all for their generous support for this work. Oh, and check out Heinz's terrific podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at heinz.org slash podcast. Absolutely. And we certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you for listening. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Till next time. (laughs) Let's hear it.